I'm uh, with Robert Scare. Hi, Robert. Hi, George. So, you've done a lot of work on uh, trauma. Maybe one way to start would be for you to talk about how you define trauma. Well, I define trauma um, as any situation, any experience that one has that uh, poses a threat to their safety and or their life. And, and that, that can have many meanings because uh, our lives evolve in a way that we have threatening experiences. And once we do, we become sensitized to certain things uh, that uh, may pose a threat to us, even though they might not to another person. Uh, those kinds of threats, if they occur in a state of helplessness, the inability to deal with, to mitigate, or to prevent that uh, life-threatening experience from occurring, uh, that will result in the event being a traumatic event. In other words, a life threat in a state of helplessness. Yeah, yeah. So, um, in other words, you're not uh, just focusing on the type of event, but on the uh, importance, the perception, the uh, interaction between the event and the person who's in it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and uh, as I implied, the <coughs> excuse me, the meaning of the event is an important factor in this. So, can you maybe expand on that? The meaning of the event. Well, if, um, well, I guess I can give you an example. A, a, a patient of mine saw a therapist whom I referred her, came back to me and said that I, this therapist bothers me, although she's very sweet, kind, and understanding. So I asked her to describe the therapist whom I knew, and she described her down to her, her cosmetics, including red fingernail polish. And she then had this flush on her face, and oh my God, I just remembered my grandmother who abused me had red fingernail polish all the time. Well, so events that reflect old past traumas uh, may become traumatic, even though they're trivial to, to on, on the surface. And but that's a very important consideration: what constitutes a traumatic event, the meaning of event in the context of one that has life experience. Yes, yes. So maybe that brings us to um, uh, a discussion of um, dissociation. Well, the dis dissociation, is a, there's a lot written about this. The state, uh, numbing and avoidance in the uh, DSM-4 criteria uh, represent dissociative states. Numbing because dissociation is fueled by endorphins. Uh, and avoidance because of the uh, fact that dissociation is associated with experiencing of an old traumatic memory, and as a result, one avoids uh, the, the experience. But in fact, I think dissociation is the thing that we perceive when we are in what might be called the freeze response, which is the third phase of the fight-flight-freeze sequence when one does face a uh, life-threatening event, and in the case of the freeze, one one is helpless. So the freeze is the natural physiological response to a traumatic stress, uh, and the freeze is extremely important because it is a state of immobility, it's a state of parasympathetic dominance, that is, 
the dorsal vagal nucleus in the brainstem of all creatures uh, in the face of a threat results in uh, the slowing down of the heart rate, slowing down of respirations, and collapse and immobility. And during that state, the animal is, is conscious, but I think perceives what we describe as dissociation, which is a distortion of perception, a numbing uh, of perception and of, of pain, um, and, a, and a collapse state. And the freeze response is very important because one can't stay in that state for a long time without jeopardy. Uh, in the case of mammals, um, they were not designed to be in the freeze response for a long state, and uh, many mammals <coughs> will actually die during that state because of the absence of, of adequate heart rate and respirations. So it's a perilous state. Uh, but it is a state, I think, that defines trauma because it is uh, equivalent to dissociation. Yeah, so so um, you prefer to uh, to explain it in terms of the freeze response, yes, as opposed to just association. Yes. Yeah. On the other hand, though, um, you talk about the um, the capsule. Yeah, I talk about the dissociative capsule um, because. Uh, in the in the trauma literature, will one uh, will see that there's a universal acceptance of the fact that the symptoms of trauma, which are defined in P- as PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, um, are associated uh, with uh, dissociation frequently, and 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 they're also associated with uh, memory phenomenology. Uh, Declarative memory is conscious memory that we use to access facts and events and information. Uh, Implicit or unconscious memory includes a category of procedural memory. Procedural memory is the type of memory we use to access the acquisition of skills. Uh, That's how we learn to be uh, an athlete or an artist or otherwise. It also is the part of unconscious memory that governs classical conditioning and classical mm-hmm. conditioning uh, is a means by which we learn skills to survive actually so in other words what happens um, in the um, uh, dissociation and the trauma process is uh, some kind of a hijacking of that uh, or some kind of a, a malfunction or of the um, of this conditioning process yes and I, I, I like to use Peter Levine's analogy of this with the fact that um, in an animal or in a human being actually who survives the threat and goes through the freeze response and then emerges from it in the state of safety, they will go through what can be called a discharge even. In the case of a fight and flight response where you were attempting to flee or struggling to escape, uh, what will often happen is a motor response, a trembling, a shaking, a stiffening, a contraction of muscles, which replicates the act of self-defense that was stopped when the freeze response ensued. And what that does basically is extinguishes the procedural memory for all the somatic elements of that experience, the sensations, smells, tastes, images, of the body movement patterns that you tried to do, use to protect yourself or to, to flee. And going through these after the freeze response extinguishes all of this. 
Uh, and if you don't do that, if you don't extinguish these elements, they will remain in procedural memory permanently. Yeah. So in other words... Because the brain uses that to learn to survive in the future. Uh, but unfortunately, this is false information because it's all over. But the brain continues to perceive that this threat is still there. And any cue of the threat will then bring up all the body sensations and even the images and even memories of that event. Yeah. So, so um, you know, this information is still stored. It's unfinished business. And until uh, such a time as this is discharged, uh, reset, then uh, the brain still has the information that the threat at hand is still looming and can reappear any minute. Exactly. And, of course, that defines all the symptoms of the DSM-4's definition of PTSD, if you think about it. A flashback is the interruption of one's attention in the present moment by a dissociative capsule, which is a very precise replication of all of the autonomic, emotional, and physical symptoms of that traumatic event. And again, on that dissociative capsule, uh, we're not talking about just a sense of um, an as-if, a remembering, but it's really reliving, isn't it? Absolutely. One perceives these events. One smells the smells. If there was pain involved in the trauma, one feels the pain as if it were absolutely real. Because within that moment, those sensations and perceptions are real. It's a corruption of memory, if you like, but, but they are felt as if it is happening now, not as if it happened in the past and you're just remembering it. Yeah, so it's uh, it's stored and it's replayed and it gives you the sense that it's happening right now. Yeah. Um, so, um, um, you know, it has also uh, some um, some impact on uh, psychosomatic problems. Well, the, the physiological state that the person's in when they're in, if you like, a dissociated capsule replicates the physiological state that occurred at the time of the trauma. Their autonomic nervous system, their pulse rate is up uh, or they're, it's down. Uh, the, the muscles that were trying to protect them go into spasm and tension. Uh, all of the, everything is replicated and during that time, their body is in the same state as they were in the traumatic event, which wreaks havoc with one's health actually. Because you stay uh, permanently in a state that's designed to be appropriate just for an emergency. That's right. You're in and out of these these states, and and trauma really can be defined as a, a syndrome of severe dysregulation, impaired autonomic, smooth, homeostatic regulation of the many systems of the body. And that includes the autonomic system, the endocrine system, the the glands that that secrete hormones that govern your body, and the immune system, which is also uh, modulated by those hormones. So you have a general systemic dysregulation of, of body functions, not just an emotional problem. So when we talk about um, uh, psychosomatic disorders, obviously we're not talking about something imaginary, and we are talking about something that's a symptom of a dysregulation of the nervous system, which then affects the organs uh, through the nervous system. Exactly, yes. And these syndromes, like the way that the brain is cycling abnormally through 
sympathetic and parasympathetic peaks and troughs, uh, these syndromes are associated with dysregulation, not with a fixed state. And that's the problem with the medical profession, is that we look at disease as being a constant, like cancer or atherosclerosis and heart disease. Uh, but in fact, disease, uh, uh, diseases don't have a constant state one can measure with any blood test image or, or a finite, uh, Proof and therefore they're hard to diagnose other than by uh, the interpretation of the physician. And as a result, and they're also associated with the uh, labile emotions. The emotions are also cycling, uh, as is the body. And uh, this lability of emotions, of course, lends itself to the physician thinking that the patient is emotionally disturbed, and that probably is the cause of their imaginary physical problem. So, of course, there is an emotional disturbance, but it's not an imaginary problem. No, it's not. Of course not. It reflects the emotions that are associated with those states of arousal and also states of dissociation. So, for instance, in your work with uh, whiplash, uh, you and whiplash is something that is, uh, to many people, it feels very physical. There's an accident, there is a big shock, so we expect it to be something that's going to be organic damage. And you actually have found something where uh, the uh, dysregulation has a lot to do with the uh, symptoms that people experience. Sure. I, I basically... As I got into the field of trauma through my early contacts with Peter Levine, um, I had him see a number of my therapists doing a demo and then sent him a few patients who had dramatic mitigation of, of physical symptoms with a somatically based therapy for PTSD. Uh, and. I did a lot of reading and began to realize that uh, whiplash syndrome is really a syndrome of procedural memory, not of physical injury to the body. So could you elaborate on that when you say it's a symptom of procedural memory as opposed to uh, physical injury to the body? Well, all of the physical events that occurred in, say, a rear-end auto accident, uh, the, the throwing of the head back and forth, uh, the shaking of the body, uh, the stimulation of the vestibular, the balance system through the movements of the head, uh, the images that one sees, the smells of the, of the burning metal, the sound of the crash, uh, all of these sensations are stored in procedural memory because what I found was in the whiplash victims that I treated, and I was at tertiary center, and I was in a rehab center where I kind of got the worst of the worst, the bad outcomes. Uh, as I started to work with the field of trauma, I began to do trauma histories, and I discovered that the predominant feature that all these people had in common, including in my chronic pain program that I directed, was early child abuse. Mm. And this varied from uh, alcoholic parents to uh, incest and to physical abuse. Uh, but that was a striking feature uh, of the correlation with child abuse with a whiplash syndrome that didn't get better. And that ultimately made sense to be because the brain is sensitized in childhood when one is abused, making the individual very prone to subsequent trauma. And then the physical symptoms of the whiplash all could be ascribed to the unconscious memories of the sensations that were triggered by this event 
the average person, one would experience it, would remember it, they'd be shaken, but they'd recover. But if one is sensitized, as one is, by early childhood trauma, then these will be incorporated into procedural memory as part of the trauma structure. And PTSD would also accomplish this. So, or accompany this. Yes. So in a, in a person who is not especially sensitized, you know, it's a shock, but it goes away. And in a person that is sensitized, there is a predisposition to, to having a problem with it, and you say it's incorporated into procedural memory. Yeah. Um, in, in what way? In a sense of these, uh, you know, the responses to it that haven't had, you know, haven't had a chance to express themselves, in the sense of uh, this, uh, you know, bringing back, you know, just like salt on an old wound. How does it work? Well, when one has had child abuse, one will tend to dissociate easily throughout the rest of one's life. Ellen Shore writes about this. And uh, one will freeze over and over again, even in, in minor circumstances. And most of the patients that I saw, and I, that my history taking changed as I became aware of this, most of the people had a period of stunning, numbing, and confusion at the time of the accident. And in fact, they continued to have cognitive problems and were diagnosed as having minor traumatic brain injuries. But in many cases with my brain injury patients, uh, treating them with somatic uh, techniques such as Peter Levine's somatic experiencing cleared the brain injury. Literally, it disappeared in a matter of a month after two years of, of uh, cognitive impairment. Because what this, the symptoms of brain injury do to was a repetitive state of dissociation during which time you don't think very clearly. So um, the physical symptoms also got better because they, are, they formed, in fact, whiplash, I could say, is an example of a dissociative capsule. Mm -hmm. All of the physical and autonomic and emotional experiences are stored in exact form within all the specific experiences of that accident. And it keeps coming back. Uh, they drive uh, down the street and a red truck passes by and that's the color of the car that hit them. And suddenly they get back pain, they get dizziness, their vision blurs, and they feel panic. Just from that cue triggering a dissociative capsule, which then interrupted their state of present movement consciousness. Right, so so that's why you talk about um, this being a memory problem as opposed to an organic problem. Yes. Well, I say it's still organic. It's neurophysiological. Mm -hmm. It's not psychological. It has to do with brain physiology. With the brain physiology, but the way to deal with it is uh, is clearing the memory banks. Exactly. And because this is a conditioned response, by definition, mm -hmm. it, one needs to use processes that involve the phenomena of extinction. In other words, separating the uh, signals from the, of the event from the response. Yeah, yeah. So extinction, separating the event from the response. So, how do we do that? What's your model for that? Well, you know, one could look at it as Levine does. Uh, if we can elicit or bring out the freeze discharge that didn't occur that will extinguish all of the events because it will occur in a state of safety, the therapeutic alliance between the therapist and the, and the patient. And in that state of safety, the cues won't trigger 
the arousal system of the brain, the amygdala within the mammalian limbic system, which is the early warning center. And if you don't trigger the amygdala, then those events will occur without arousal, and it will be like ringing the bell without feeding the dog. Mm-hmm. This is the process of extinction. Yeah. So, um, you know, disconnecting the amygdala. Yes. You know, the uh, you talked about the alliance with the therapist, the safety. In a larger context, what is it you know in us that responds and helps uh, counteract the activation of the amygdala? Well, there, there are portions of the brain that uh, provide what might be called a servo system of inhibition of the amygdala, which evaluates the severity of, of a perceived threat, and then either allow the amygdala to do its job to its fullest extent or put a damper on the amygdala because that information is not really as uh, dangerous as it would appear to be. And these areas of the brain include what's called the orbitofrontal cortex. And you have to remember this is all on the right side of the brain. The right side is the right limbic system is the part that uh, takes care of this early warning response. Mm-hmm. The orbitofrontal cortex is a unique structure that um, uh, develops in childhood and, and that uh, Alan Shore discusses in great detail. Uh, this is a part of the brain that regulates both the emotional system and the autonomic nervous system in response to threat. And it's a part that develops very specifically through the process of maternal infant bonding and attunement. And in fact, in a child, if you do serial MRIs, you'll see that the right frontal part of the brain grows rapidly and even overlaps the left front part of the brain in the attuned child. And in the child who is deprived of attunement with a maternal figure, it does not do that, and in fact, it shrinks. And as Shore says, in the absence of development of that part of the brain, one will face a lifetime of emotional and physical dysregulation. So that part of the brain is critically important, and it probably is why in the person who's had child abuse, the odds are that they had terrible attunement, they don't have the resources of an adequately developed right over the frontal cortex to modulate threats and stress. And they're more and more prone to dissociating with any threat and to being traumatized with any trauma. Right. That's the first part. Mm-hmm. The second part is the cingulate gyrus. It's the anterior cingulate cortex, which is part of the limbic system. And this is a, a part of the brain that has a wealth of mirror neurons. Neurons that enable one to understand or empathize with another person's experience. Something that, that probably isn't unique to human beings, but certainly typifies the better parts of our nature. The orbitofrontal, the cingulate uh, gyrus uh, is also responsive, as you can imagine, since it's the empathic center. Uh, it's responsive to interaction between human beings in a culture, tribe, or family. Uh, and uh, is probably an extremely important area of the brain in the therapeutic alliance between the psychotherapist and the patient because it promotes attunement, as does the uh, orbitofrontal cortex. Mm -hmm. Well, both of these centers are specifically involved in down-tuning, down-regulating, or inhibiting the amygdala when the threat is not of great importance. And as a result, bringing on those centers 
clearly needs to be part of the therapeutic alliance. And anything that one can do to, to bring these on would downregulate the amygdala and shut down the arousal system and allow all of the memories, sensations, and feelings that come up during that experience, during that therapeutic alliance, to emerge without arousal and be extinguished again, like ringing the bell without feeding the dog. So that is my model for the ultimate requirements, the essential ingredient in healing trauma. Yeah, yeah. So that um, um, this is uh, an innate capacity of the brain at two levels, one for um, attunement uh, and uh, one for empathy. Um, And in people who do not have that capacity trained or developed uh, in childhood, there's going to be a predisposition to being more sensitive to trauma. Exactly. And that explains why trauma victims often throughout our lifespan will become worse, will develop new symptoms, will be trivially re-traumatized, and uh, it can be a slippery slope. And so conversely, um, in your experience with uh, whiplash victims, uh, you're not in a way just dealing with the whiplash because you're going at another level. Well, you're going at the whole limbic brain and its responses. Uh, You're treating uh, the syndrome uh, at the the core of its origin, which is uh, the, the memory systems of the brain. And uh, the physical symptoms will disappear if they're no longer needed for survival, so to speak. Because the brain thinks that those threats are still there and therefore they have to bring out this out. Like you learn if you're a gazelle on the Kalahari Desert that a cat with, with spots is something you run from. Uh, and the brain continues to hold on to those cues even though there are no cats right. <laughs> simply in memory. But so as you heal trauma, do you also then increase resilience? Oh, yes, of course. That's the goal. Now, you know, Pavlov's dogs, 10 years after they were extinguished with the bell and the the food, one trial and they were completely uh, reconditioned. One never loses all of these procedural memories. They never all totally go away. But uh, they will be mitigated and unimportant. And then in the later parts of the therapeutic process cognitive therapy is still important I don't think you can heal trauma by words alone and I think there are a great many uh, trauma specialists who now see this and, and feel that somatic methods to extinguish the body's symptoms and experiences are, are necessary but you do need the words to provide a meaning for the event because later when one recognizes that that terrible pain on the left side of one's neck is not due to a ruptured disc but is due to memory and it still comes back they can say oh I know what that is that's that's my sentinel trauma muscle that's just acting up and it's not anything wrong with me and then they don't go into fear and arousal mm-hmm Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's a learning, there's meaning, um, and uh, so there's growth. Yeah, exactly. I think it's transformation. I mean, I think the ultimate endpoint of healing trauma is a, is a state of enhanced awareness of reality and meaning of life, and uh, you learn something from it. And I think that wisdom is acquired through the healing of trauma. Yeah. 
I think um, uh, if you, we go back to your definition of trauma through the uh, dissociation and the dissociative capsule, um, which hijacks our ability to see the present, I can see that as we overcome that, it's an increased ability to be in the present. Yes, it is, which of course is the state of grace that one needs to heal trauma. And it's uh, it's a state that we need to uh, modulate the things that happen to us in our daily life, many of which are negative. We can't avoid stress. Mm -hmm. And being able to access that state, I think, is healing. Because during the present moment, uh, you are in a state of, of, of healing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and to go back to um, something that actually affects our present moment very much, and we, you know, can be um, very overwhelmed by it, things like chronic pain, things like uh, um, uh, fibromyalgia, symptoms that seem really organic, sometimes unexplainable, but are affected by stress and trauma. Yes. How do you see those things? Well, I consider dissociation to be a, a wide, wide spectrum. You're, everybody's familiar with what we call uh, intrusive thoughts or monkey brain or mm -hmm. <laughs> brain chatter. Uh, these are unresolved approach avoidance situations inevitably. There are things that have happened to us that have meaning to our survival. They may be fairly subtle, but to us they have meaning for our daily existence that have not been resolved there are issues interfering with the process that haven't been resolved and therefore they keep popping up it's the, it's the thoughts that keep you awake at night that you can't go to sleep with the thoughts that interrupt your your task when you're going to the bedroom to find something and you've forgotten what you came in there for uh, it's because you had these little intrusive thoughts these are little dissociative capsules they are unresolved stress where you are helpless unresolved, minor, threatening, therefore traumatic experiences where you don't have control. And so we experience this all the time. Now they get resolved and that they heal themselves often and you know, trauma can heal by itself at times if it's minor and if the person is resilient. Uh, but this is, this is something that we see in our daily life all the time. Um, trauma therapy actually would help that, but uh, it's just part of part of our daily life, and awareness of this actually can diminish the importance of these intrusive thoughts. Just so, knowing what they are. So you're you're talking about um, a trauma-oriented uh, psychopathology of everyday life. Yeah, I think it's a good way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. We, we you know we, we face this all the time. The more resilient we are, the less we are intruded by it. And um, in a way, the the model that uh, you present is one where there is a very wide range of trauma from little, fairly trivial, undigested events to much larger events, some that are, um, I would say, with quote marks, objectively life-threatening to others that are more trivial, but there is a continuum and it's something that has to do with um, learning, capacity to be conditioning, integration, digesting these difficult things. Yes, I, I make a point, I, I, I've thought enough about that that I entitled my second book on that, The Trauma Spectrum. I, I think that we face traumatic experiences 
all the time, uh, especially in a an organized culture, a city-state, uh, a large civilization where large groups of people are bonded together and who then put restrictions on their behavior in order to uh, maintain cultural order. It's certainly much harder to do that in a city or a nation than in a tribe. Mm-hmm. And so we have complicated our lives a lot, I think, by our, our uh, developing these huge populations and cultures and uh, cities that require uh, restrictions of our behavior. And ultimately, I think this then assumes the physiology of trauma. Uh, you look at, at the, the hierarchical uh, structure of a corporation, uh, any any pyramidal structure where there's a pecking order of responsibility and power puts one in the state uh, as one is towards the bottom of the pyramid in a state of relative helplessness and subject to uh, being traumatized by situations that are unavoidable, unresolvable, and conflicted. And I think I consider these trauma. I consider that uh, uh, a lot of corporate structure perpetuates trauma such things as gender discrimination mm-hmm. I think that racial discrimination uh, or sexuality discrimination is traumatic in these cultures and I think uh, if you talk to a group of women you know, I think a lot of them will agree that many of them are in, in situations where they are discriminated against they can't do anything about it and it is wearing on one's brain and spirit and it, it goes on and on yeah, and in a primitive culture where maybe there would be less chance for trauma in the first place, you had the shamanic rituals to deal with it, uh, and uh, and in our culture we don't so have so much of that, and maybe that's a place where um, therapy takes on some of that heritage. Well, you ritual rituals bring members of a group together, uh, and a tribe, of course, really depend on rituals. We wonder why they have had these very special dances and, and music and drumming and chanting and, and things that they do routinely to bring together the community uh, in, the, in this state. And, of course, this is healing. Rituals are dependent upon the bonding of the individuals and their interior singular gyrus is online mm-hmm. all through the ritual process. They are detuning the amygdala with a vengeance. And I think that's that's the healing process for one thing in the shamanic ritual and in tribal customs where they get band together to do this and they instinctually know that this is necessary for them to survive as a, as a, a tribe as a culture mm-hmm. maybe ours is football I don't know <laughs> I, don't, I don't think so yeah so uh, Bob as we're Coming to the end of this, is this a good place to end, or is there something you would want to uh, conclude with? No, I, I think this, this is a fair summary of uh, a lot of my ideas. Great. Thanks, Bob. This recording is part of the Somatic Mindfulness and Relational Psychotherapy podcast. See the website, relationalimplicit.com.